Hey, welcome to A Big Story Rewind. Podcast has undergone a few iterations since 2019. I've sought this mythical, pure conversation with inspiring creators over the years. And each season, I feel like it just that bit closer to having that give and take conversation that I forget I'm actually recording and I fool myself that we're having a real, <laughs> a real talk between friends. Well, the show is different now. There's still so many amazing episodes in the archives that I want to share with you. So be prepared for two more hosts. Um, there's a lot more talk focused on images appearing on the screen while we were recording, but that stuff really doesn't affect the heart of the story and our guests' unique tales. I hope you enjoy this big story rewind. Thanks for listening. been since like 1997 since i've had cable so i have no idea what's going on in the world you don't have youtube <laughs> i don't have a youtube i don't know how this happens i just sit in front of my computer and all of a sudden the podcast appears all right welcome to the big story podcast um thank you for joining us we're really happy to have everyone here um i'm alex morrissey i'm Gary dufna and today we have jeremy holt in the house yay jeremy He's like, like, like Nutella. Isn't Nutella the best spread? Oh, okay. Uh, That's where you're going. Yeah. (laughs) I think think Nutella might be the best, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the miracle with people are are quickly writing a letter towards us to say that their spread is better, but no, it's Nutella. Just saying. Um, Jeremy, how are you doing? I'm better i i am one of the people that caught covid oh so. got it got it, got it. Oh, yeah if we were a morning talk radio show we'd have like all those sort of buzzers and whistle sounds <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Yeah, uh, i had a i had a pretty rough go of it I, i'm finally i finally tested negative a couple days ago and i'm feeling oh, human sort of yeah. but um it was Ooh. rough it was rough where did you where did it where did it manifest what do you think um i think i probably got it from my landlord um it's the really the only place that i'm i'm generally maskless um Mm -hmm. and i found out i can't really pinpoint the timeline on when my landlord got it but by the time i found out i was already feeling symptoms which i thought was a um like allergies and then it just started to take off and and this past week in quarantine i i I just was having these like fever daydreams or nightmares wow. where it's like uh you know those movies where there's the the hostile alien takeover yeah. and then the world is just firing all their missiles at these ships and it does nothing yeah that is basically what COVID feels like with all the medication i was taking nothing oh. had any effect um oh. and it's really debilitating when you when you're taking these things that you you know you typically work and right. it had almost no the only thing that really worked was ibuprofen for some of the pain but uh, like the headaches but um yeah it was it was pretty intense so did you, did you try tylenol did you try a leave did you try i i, I everything? did I, yeah i did advil cold and sinus i did some mucinex i've done robot like it, 
and like none of the lozenges for my sore throat had any effect and like yeah. the sore throat was the worst oh. part of it like razor blades like what like swollen sore throat yeah like my my lymph nodes were super swollen um oh. i never really got a fever but like um it just felt like a sinus cold times a thousand yeah. with a hangover on top of that oh um, and none of yeah. the none of the regretful memories none of the nope damn so yeah, but damn um, you, COVID. Yeah, <laughs> but hey, at least I have a, a boosted immunity now, I, I guess, and I'm going on a book tour in a couple of weeks, so it's kind of good timing. I guess it is. That is kind of good timing. Like, is it? This will be the new thing that publicists are saying. Okay, listen, we've got a couple of people who are testing positive for COVID. Go get COVID, so then you're <laughs> yeah. sure. Can't you get it again after you've gotten it? You can. So I'm still going to be super precautious. I mean, I'm I'm vaxxed and boosted, but like I can still get it. So now, now that I know what it's like, I'm actually more conscious of how, when I'm wearing a mask, distancing between people, um, I'm feeling less brave to go like, say, hang out at a bar per se. Yeah. Um, But so thank uh, God you're vaxxed and boost, huh? I know. I, I think I probably would have been hospitalized if I wasn't, to be honest. Sure. Yeah, that's the, um, you know, I think, I mean, we're all sort of at that, you know, well, now you're not, but many of us are at that stage where you know, we've been doing this for two years and we're just like, yeah. you know, like we're all like oh, the mask, you know, like you just like, yeah, it, just, that's the thing now. I just, whenever I go to the store to get food, I just put the mask on. It's a habit yeah. now. I just, and I'm wearing it in my house. I forget I have it on. <laughs> 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 well, I don't trust you either, Gary. So I would do it if I were you. I would, I would wear the mask. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, it's rough. I'm glad you're doing well, man, because that that is just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're not, you're not alone. Like so many people that I know. Yeah, and that's the thing. What's so crazy about this, how quickly this is spread? Because I, I do distinctly remember, like, not too long ago, like a few months ago, I remember thinking. My friends who caught COVID, my initial thought was, oh, you're being careless. And now it's like, I don't feel the same shame around it. Right. Um, and I don't really have any feelings about people getting it because everyone's getting it. I mean, living in New York City, it's sort of inevitable. Yeah. Um, oh, man. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I, yeah, it's just spreading like I had, wildfire. I was talking with my writer friend and, you know, and I just, I had this, this epiphany came to me and I was talking with her and I said, you know, I think we need to stop sort of like stigmatizing, you know, getting COVID because it isn't this sort of like, it's not just like, oh, you were being a dummy. Like, right. it's just, this is a thing. Like, and like, it, it would be like, a, you know, like, oh, you got a cold? What are you doing? You know, like, yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I think, you know, we have to come to the, the terms because I think it's, it's definitely been a divisive, you know, mm-hmm. reaction that, that is kind of built up. So, um, yeah, no, I, it's I and and also, I mean, did you I, really kind of personal question, but did you feel anything like did you have any flashes to yourself going like, were you upset with yourself for getting it or do or were you pretty like kind? Um, yeah, I was definitely upset. Um, yeah. I, I think I just felt a bit naive. I think it just, you know, the the living with with what we're all going through for the past two years and, uh, you know, I. I to be quite honest, have exposed myself quite a bit just living in New York and working in a school. And, uh, you know, every week I'm getting emails from my job saying, oh, you came in contact with someone who now tests positive. So I go get tested and it's like, well, that's fine. And like, you know, I hadn't caught it and I was, I was able to go to Montreal to visit family over the holiday and I didn't get sick then. So I came back kind of thinking, 
eh, maybe I'm not going to get it. And then like, I'm a superhero. Later, like, yeah. <laughs> the moment I was like, maybe I'm immune. It's like, no, no, you are not. You um, caught it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, it just shows how, how easy it is to catch it. If, if my suspicions are correct and I did get it from my landlord, right. it's just a matter of walking, sharing a hallway with somebody. Sure. Yeah. Do you get a discount on rent for the next month? Because of <laughs> if I could maybe prove at least a week. Yeah. I mean, like, no, just, unfortunately, yeah, take like, a little discount. Reread your lease. There might be something in there. I'm yeah. Just, right. Communicable <laughs> disease discount. I don't know. He gave it to you. <laughs> so, I mean, so so you're you know you're you're quarantined. So that means you're you got all this time on your hands. What did you do? Did you did you write? Did you? He didn't did do you a damn it? thing. He was trying yeah. to survive. <laughs> trying to like just trying to survive is correct. Um, but like when I was starting to feel better, and and when my quarantine lifted on Saturday. Um, I um, was offered some work for hire, um, a work for hire gig. So that was kind of perfect timing because it was something I could start thinking about. And I was given a bunch of um, these back issues I needed to read about the character I was mm -hmm. asked to write for. And so that was that was actually pretty cool to read some old comics back like in the early 70s. Um, oh, wow. And so kind of getting my head wrapped around this particular character that I need to uh, hopefully write a 10 page story for um, has been kind of a nice way to kick off being very extremely unproductive uh, <laughs> for the past, I don't know, two weeks well, into the new nice reward. It's a deadline, you know, yeah. there's like, like, there's like, they're the best. Like deadlines are fantastic. Oh, you, I need them. Yeah. Because like, if you don't have them, man, it's just this drag. And, but if, if someone rings you up and says, Hey, you know, we want you to do this thing. And you say, yes, like th there's no more like Nintendo cart. I don't, that's a thing. Right. Nintendo cart. <laughs> yeah. So like, I mean, like, like, but that's a thing. Like, I mean, it's really, really helpful. So it's actually like the best, like medicine was getting that call that sort of that email. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and, um, I work really great with deadlines. Um, and this, I, I, I have some creator owned stuff I've been working on, but that's been, you know, I, I am ahead of schedule writing wise on, on some of those projects. So there isn't this immediate need to kind of work on them. So mm -hmm. usually if I'm left to my own devices, I, I can procrastinate. Yeah. Um, so this is nice where it's like, it's a very fixed deadline, um, which is coming up. And um, there's obviously very strict parameters regarding yep. continuity. Um, so it's been kind of cool to kind of inundate myself with this one particular character. So yeah. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been good and, and it feels good because it's like, oh, my creative brain still works. Like because I, I kind of came up with an idea uh, yesterday and it's slowly evolving and it's getting better in my mind and I'm just, you know, starting to write it down. So that feels pretty good. Do you so do you I mean, because like I have I have like sort of buckets where I put ideas in. Like I have I have sort of like lines, I have characters, I have titles i have you know sort of scenes like I, I just have these buckets that i put these different sort of things in um for when i am sort of asked to do something or i have to do something so i i will i will often go in there and just kind of like rummage around even if i don't use it it's sort of kind of gets something moving do you have do you have a sort of system or do you just kind of take us walk 
Um, yeah, I, I have stuff I've, I've worked on. I mean, I have so many pitches that have never seen the light of day. So, you know, usually if someone comes knocking and says, what else do you have? I, I usually have that stuff locked and loaded. Um, as far as new, new material, like in the last year, um, I have two things that I've been working on. One, I just realized was more of a concept and there's really no story to it. And I, I banged my head against that wall for like three or four months. And I was like, I just, there's nothing here, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but then I took an old idea and I took the components that I still like about it and removed everything that doesn't work anymore and have completely revitalized it and reshaped it and um, working on it with an artist. And, and that feels really good because it's actually a better idea now than it was when I conceived of it like 10 years ago. Okay. Well, you'd hope you hope you're getting better, not worse. Let's exactly go right there. Um, but so, but like with like using somebody else's property is a very different prospect of you know of creation. You know, for people who are creating indie comics um, and haven't worked with a publisher on somebody else's IP, it's a very different approach because you don't you're just not sort of like, Hey, here's my idea for whatever. And then they, you know, you're, you, you really, it, it's a very contextual, um, you know, process where you have to really, it's like, you have to create an argument like a lawyer, you know, okay, well, here, yeah. here's the scenario. <clears throat> These are the reasons why. And they go, yeah, but what if they no, we've already figured that out, you know? And like, yeah. you have to kind of like play this whole thing. So like, and I guess reading those back issues is probably a really big part of that sort of creative evolution because you you see that little nugget you know that that's was a throwaway or whatever for that mm -hmm. you're like huh what if i and then yeah it's like you know i've been invited into this house and and i'm i can add to the house but i can't completely change the house so like you know there are things i have to be mindful of and like there are you know load-bearing walls these these parts of this character's you know history that I can't change. And that is the foundation of that character. Um, but, you know, knowing the whole vast history of this, you know, house, um, I kind of can see where I can fit in um, my changes. Um, and I do need to sort of make this argument with myself, like, whatever I'm going to pitch, I need to be able to, you know, cross all my T's and dot my I's where, you know, I know I'm prepared for any questions mm -hmm. uh, regarding any continuity conflicts or you know, motivations. And it's like, well, you know, I've got that all sort of figured out. Have you worked with this publisher or the editor before? I have only once. So, um, which is good. I mean, like I, I developed a relationship with this, with this editor and, you know, it's kind of dipping my toe in, in the pool of the big two, which is cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, the first one uh, was a five pager. This one I think is going to be twice as long. So 10 pages. So it's like a little bit more room to breathe uh, yeah. narratively. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited about the idea. Hopefully uh, my editor goes for it and, um, I should, you know, if, if my editor goes for the pitch, then I should be able to script it probably in maybe less than a week. Oh, wow. So, great. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Yeah. It's that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, in that eight, that, you know, that 10 page mark, that's a great number of pages. I mean, I think eight is my ideal. Like if I have mm -hmm. to, if I, if I say, Hey, write something short, eight is an ideal six is six is all right. You can get a, you can do stuff, but 10 is, feels like a luxury. Cause you can kind of like really like you can do a little naval contemplation or you can do a little extra, mm -hmm. you know, special sauce on top of it if you want to. <laughs> Absolutely.
Yeah, that's that's a technical writing term, Gary. So just be careful <laughs> throwing that around. Um, so that's that's very cool. I, I'm and you know, hey, congratulations that this that you got the call and this is this is rolling. It's Thanks. very it's very cool to be. I I think it's it it wasn't prevalent, you know, you know, thirty. Ugh. 30 years ago when I, when I broke into the business that there's this like thing of, um, you know, where the, the people who were creating indie comics were also on the Rolodex. Yeah. Wow. Just dated myself there too. Um, <laughs> list or email list of the people who are making, you know, editing the books, you know, at the big two, like there just, mm. was, there was a very big disconnect, you know, in many respects. I mean, you had to make some big, 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 you know, fireworks for them to go hey who are you what's up um and i think that's great and not to say that you haven't because you have your i mean your books really are phenomenal so i think that like you're getting that gary nods in agreement um oh yeah yeah in agreement big agreement yeah Uh, i think it's but it's a it's a really cool thing because i think it brings i just think it brings a whole new level of creativity to the you know the big two publishing houses that is always needed it, it's yeah. always needed um you know i mean i think you, you just have to have that s- sort of you know i mean i'm sure you have your favorite characters from the from marvel and dc i mean i do i i, I to be quite honest i i don't read a lot of those sure. those storylines so like uh the, the this is my second opportunity but the first opportunity i was thrown a character i'd, I'd never heard of right um this character I'm aware of, um, but it's surprising when when I've read these characters whose storylines date back, you know, 20, 30 years, mm. um, or if not longer, where their origin stories are like super problematic. And mm. for me, it's actually a great opportunity to sort of figure out how to reclaim yeah. those characters in a more um, holistic way, um, yeah. a less problematic way. and um so yeah I, was, I sort of have that same challenge with this character um and i've been asked to do things with the character that i, I think i figured out but it, it at the initial call was like it to me felt like a, a big ask like i i don't know how to like do these things that the editor is requesting yeah. um but i've managed to figure it out in a way that is satisfying to me as the storyteller and will be satisfying to my editor who wants to see these changes made for this character um so it's it's fun to try to juggle and and puzzle piece those uh challenges mm-hmm. um which is really what i love about writing stories yeah do you i mean when you because like i mean these you know ostensibly are short stories you know standalone mm-hmm. sort of pieces whether yeah. it's 22 page book or, or or you know five page story like these are short stories like and how do you like how do you enter into it do you like go like oh like i'm let me think of a character or male male you like what are like what are the do you do you do you approach it in a a sort of a conceptual way of saying i want to focus on you know that or do you just say i've got an idea or i've got a character and you work from i I think it's a a bit of the latter where it's like i i definitely think of um a character and a conflict um and usually it's pretty broad uh, and then I start to need, I, I start to whittle down and, and refine that, that idea. And then, um, then I start asking myself, what are, what are the themes? What are the things I want to explore? Mm-hmm. What's the overall message a reader might take away from the story? Uh, 
and then from there, if if that picks up and and what I like to say, if it grows legs that, and can move, then then you know, flushing it out and developing a, a full synopsis is um, pretty easy. Yeah. Um, just connecting those those narrative threads and those dots, but um, sometimes the 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 concept never sprouts legs, and it just feels very stagnant, and it and I don't know what to do with it. Uh, case in point, something I was developing last fall that I'm I'm convinced right now there's there's nothing to it, and I'm just going to put it on that shelf, and maybe mm-hmm. I'll figure it out later. But um, yeah, it usually starts with a, a character and a conflict. Yeah, yeah, I think that I mean I think that's relatively. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I think you. I think that's common. I think often, you know, another maybe secondary one would be a theme. Some people have an idea of a theme, and say, okay, well, I really want to explore this theme through the the story. Um, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I mean, like, I'm just trying to think like on things that I wrote. Like for most for most part, it was sort of that conceit of okay, I have a character idea. And I have that, and I think I think you know roughly it's that conflict. Um, you know, I I'm always envious when people are like, oh yeah, no, I've, I had the ending of the book, and then I sat down and wrote. I'm like, oh, you son of a, you know, because yeah. I'm like, it's like I have I I do come up with the ending sometimes, but it's not always. And there are there are writers who always have the ending figured out, and I'm like, come I on. don't I don't typically have the ending figured out. And like now that I'm thinking about it, when it comes to work for hire. I actually do the opposite of what I just described for creator on where, you know, I don't really need to think about the character because the character character is so well established. I start to think about the themes and like, what are the the themes I want to explore with this character? How do I convey those themes Mm -hmm. that will, you know, translate to the reader and hopefully resonate with the reader. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe, I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in the, in the sense that you it's already a formed object. You're not mm-hmm. recreating the wheel in that respect. So I think that might be the, yeah, that, that would seem like a logical kind of approach that you're, you're kind of telling some sort of like, I want to tell a tale, you know, so you grab the favorite action figure and you mm-hmm. go, okay, now we're going to, we're going to tell the story and go through it. Yeah. Um, totally. yeah, I, always, I, I always find that like, um, I get to these points, like if if I'm discovery writing, then I kind of pause and like, oh boy, like I like because you know you can kind of just be a bloated writer if you're not if you don't if you're not reined in in some fashion, whether it's for comics, here's your page count or a deadline, one of the other things. But <laughs> yes, then you have to sit down and then, then you kind of do that bullet point outlining outlining. Okay, well yeah, we're here. What would happen next? And you just start creating your conflict resolution conflict resolutions kind of system until you get to that sort of ending that you've vaguely seen the distance <laughs> and hope it wins part the clouds um yeah I, I think for made in korea specifically it was one of those stories where i had a very specific ending early on when i was developing the story back in like 2017 okay and i realized i was only actually telling half the story mm. um so when i started thinking about you know this whole second part of the protagonist's journey, um, a new ending kind of formed and it, it really actually started to shape itself while I was writing it. I didn't really have it in mind. It sort of, this idea came to me of how I was going to end it in the middle of, I think, writing the second to last issue. And it's like, oh, wait, I, oh, I see where this is going. Because the character sort of was speaking for herself by that point when I was writing it. And I was like, well, this is the natural conclusion to this right. character. Yeah. 
No, no, totally. I, I, and that's, you know, that, and I think that's so true because I think when writers sort of craft the character initially, you know, they're not exactly <clears throat> real at that point. They, they right. have, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of, they're interesting, you know, there's something interesting about that, that person that you've come up with and to one degree or another or thing, I guess, and you could write about a, you know, a box if you wanted to. Um, but, you know, but then there's this point when they really do speak for themselves mm-hmm. and step forward and make choices and they're making choices and the other characters that you're writing with are making their own choices. And th- then that conflict that we were, you know, that we're, we need, you know, as writers mm-hmm. comes into play because everybody wants something a little bit different, you know, even though yeah. we may want the s- same kind of outcome, we're all kind of fighting for for the way that we do it. Um, and that's, so that's really interesting. You were so sort of close at the end when the, the new ending kind of you know, appeared. Um, was this a, a yay or a yay? Oh man, <laughs> got to go back and. Um, it, it was more of a, more of a yay. Like um, mm-hmm. I, I, had a rough idea of where I wanted it to end, but how to get the character to that ending was the challenge. And, and this, you know, figuring that out was that missing puzzle piece. Like, oh, I see the whole picture now. Yeah. Um, which was a relief because when I was writing the second last issue, I was like, well, I've got more, one more issue to wrap this up, or I don't know what I'm doing, and I'll need three more issues. Like, yeah. so. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book, man. It, it, <laughs> It's so cool. Uh, we 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 interviewed George recently. Uh, oh, awesome! Yeah, and uh, the artwork blew it blows my mind, and the story is just I, Gary. Gary tipped me off to the book early. Um, he quickly, yeah, I was looking at it, going, "Man, what is this? This is interesting because yeah. it doesn't like the cover didn't look like your normal." comic book not yeah. even it, it looks like a, a like a novel comic a, a novel mm. cover doesn't even look yeah. like a comic book so i was like all right let me give this thing a try you know yeah i opened it up and i'm like okay is this all right let's in and it's jeremy holt all right let's give this thing a try <laughs> so i brought it home and i was like reading it going this is fucking good <laughs> thanks yeah i mean and i, I, I have like, to yeah. give I have to give George credit uh, for the design work because uh, they're a graphic designer by trade. So Mm -hmm. I liked that we were thinking about the covers in a broader picture. Like we want, I mean, we wanted like a consistency to it and I, that's really my jam aesthetically. So um, yeah, looking at it now actually, and you describing it as like a a novel cover, I totally see it now. Yes. Pretty cool. Yeah. firmly agree that that has that sort of same sensibility uh and i mean you just shared the um the um the trade paperback cover right yes yeah i gotta get that gorgeous it's it's great and and once again i mean that has a has a very strong novel quality to it so well uh, i think some of the people that like that movie they live are going to be into the yeah of course, yeah, that's on sure. the cover, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've gotten that uh, plenty. People asking me if if that was the the case, and I said that really kind of. To be honest, I I described 
I mean, the first issue cover was a, a concept that George and I debated for for a very long time, and mm. we'd come up with different ideas. Um, and that whole cover went through its own evolution. So the final product uh, was not really anything I specifically described as far as that they live vibe motif. Yeah. Sure. And I'm not even sure to this day if George has seen They Live. I don't, I don't know if that's seeped into their subconscious <laughs> or they just right? are a huge fan of that film. I don't know. Legit. But, uh, yeah, but it, it is striking for sure. Yeah. yeah it's no, got that it's... propaganda feel. Yes. Well, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah. Obey. Yeah. You know? No, it's, it's right. Shepard it's fairy right. shit going on. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Well, so what, what to those people that are into fine art, not comic books, look up Shepard Ferry. All right, yes, Come on. yeah, amazing graffiti artist, amazing, oh, absolutely, yeah, for for sure. What was that? What was that movie? Um, something exit through the gift shop. Yeah, yes. yeah, that was about Banksy. Yeah, and Banksy and Shepard. Banksy's Ferry. Uh, apprentice or something like that. It wasn't yeah, actually it was about Banksy. <laughs> Which about? Look, that story in its own right is just. Have you have you all heard about the most recent thing with Banksy, the the girl with the balloon that went up for auction? No. So it, oh, it sold at auction, wall, and he put right? he put the the original art in a Say custom made it. frame that had a paper shredder in it. Mm-hmm. Right. As soon as it sold, it got. I was so like amazing. Oh, shredded. And the 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 real. Fr- I mean, like the beautiful thing was that the the shredder broke like yeah. halfway through so it just is like half the piece which i don't think was intentional i think i bet it, you that he did that he he had like some a hard part in the back of the paper so it wouldn't go through okay because I, I i just think that the, that's smart because to me i think it's so much more beautiful yeah and honestly i think that it uh, i think they were trying to resell it as is damaged which with modern art, that you could say that was its intention, and that's, that's what it's meant to be. Contemporary art, it, that is um, its intention. It, it I think. was a mistake, so it's intentional. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, you know what? I, I hear that uh, the art store is selling these great new frames with uh, shredders built in. Like, I mean, that's like not a that's not a random thing. You can pull whatever you want, and, and if you get sick of it, just press the button. <laughs> <laughs> just load a new piece in there. Uh, no, the, I mean that was that was such a such a moment. Um, yeah, you wonder about the people who were, you know, in the uh, in the space at the time when that went ha- went down. Oh, I know. There must have been this fear flooding through the room. Half of them were like us, and the other half were like, "That's cool." Because <laughs> I, I think that initial the initial reaction is you feel like you're watching money get shredded. Yes, that's yes, what it is. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, it is. That's the message. Is the value. It, it's. Yeah. You know, it would be like, it would be like. Here's all right. Here's your, here's your here's your not million dollar idea, Jeremy. Um, it's like it's like getting a comic book printed on ink that is like fades quickly. Oh yeah. But it's like a limited edition comic, like with that you write with Frank Miller drawing it, and it gets yeah. up in a black black bag, and then people buy it, and then you open it, and it's it'll only be visible for that one read. You, you know the. I heard about this liquor company that paid, I forget who the, who the director is that worked on it, but they shot a short film starring John Malkovich and yeah. it's been locked away, sealed, and it will not be viewed for a hundred years. Oh, so, geez. so, what? and it's, it was like a full production. It's, I think it's maybe like a 20 or 30 minute film, I think, but everybody that's part of it will be dead by the time it's viewed. What? And it's like, that's kind of incredible. 
So wait, but maybe like I'm, I'm, you know, this is this is my years in the you know in the design industry coming out. Did they create a specific batch? Let's say it's a whiskey. Yeah, that gets put away and locked off oh. with it, so that when this is released, there's this hundred year old casks of whiskey. Oh yeah, that'd be awesome. Because that would be like this really amazing thing because the value of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be off and like, and the only people who get to watch the movie are the people who can afford to buy the bottles of this stuff. Yeah, like imagine that. That's incredible. I mean, yeah, sort of. Will liquor company do this ourselves? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it's. I mean, I think. I mean, listen. For me, I think Banksy is such a voice, you know, of our time. Just mm-hmm. yeah, like. I'm nearly note perfect with all these pro, you know, projects out there that you, you, there's this beauty and horror and commentary that happen in these pieces that you go, yeah, you're right. (laughs) You know, and I've, I'm, I'm absolutely, you know, fascinated by the work. Um, So that's good stuff. Yeah. When, when I think of, you know, just this conversation right now, thinking about Banksy and thinking about, you know, time capsule films, it's, it sort of reinvigorates me as a storyteller, because I think it, I think all creative people or just everybody living through the pandemic has given up on at some point, right? Like just felt like, what's the point of all of this? And I definitely felt that way. Like, what's the point of making comics? What's the point of telling stories? Like this is all seems to be going to a bitter end. And I am reminded of, you know, the power of creating and the power of stories. And like, it's, it's you know stories have been around forever and there's no reason to stop making them um and in fact they can help in some ways there well i want to ask you a question off that what you just said there just but Hmm. i think that they i mean stories are really our legacy as humans Mm -hmm. it's not the the stuff that we make because that stuff just falls apart it's not the the money you accrue because you you know I mean, I guess you could create an organization that does good. And after you're gone, it keeps doing good. But I don't know. Someone could corrupt that thing and make it a horrible thing in the future. Who knows? Yeah. Um, and but like stories, I mean, there there are stories that have been handed down for thousands of years. Yeah. That's an incredibly powerful thing. So, I, I you know, I mean, it's a privilege to be a storyteller um, and to share these things with people and you know you can entertain there's mm-hmm. wrong with that you know but you can also you can also kind of give a little more um what's like do you have any stories that like were that sort of inspiration for you like that have been, like, um want to do something hmm. or say something i think that um movies were really the first vehicles of storytelling that really captivated my imagination okay um I think the first time I saw, um, I can't remember the first Spielberg film I saw, but I just remember it really, just his his way with the camera mm-hmm. um, was very uh, exciting. Yeah. And um, honestly, when I saw Sam Mendes's American Beauty, um, that film I think about a lot. The film score, Thomas Newman's film score, I use a lot of his music yeah. when writing. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, just American Beauty really tapped into this kind of 
um, American angst that I found really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I've sort of thought about it a lot uh, since then and, and definitely incorporated some of that into Made in Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, having this, you know, nine-year-old proxy AI child living in suburbia and, uh, you know, what, what can happen when you just want to try to fit in. Right. Um, so those were big influences. And then um, I think uh, just, you know, reading a, a lot of novels, mm-hmm. um, Michael Shaben has been a huge influence. I, I think that when I read his Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Amazing Adventures of Kevin Claves, that was kind of yeah. amazing to me, the power of historical fiction. Yeah. And he wrote Cavalier and Clay so well that I, within the history of comics, mm-hmm. that I want to believe that these cousins lived and existed and, and For created sure. the escapist. And, and that is so powerful that, you know, you craft these, these beautiful characters so perfectly that it's almost hard to imagine them not being real. Yeah. And, that's really kind of what I'm always striving for is like, I want to create a character that there's so much plausibility that you want to believe that they're real. And, and honestly, one of the best compliments I ever received for my work is when I was writing um, after Houdini and I wrote about Houdini's son, Joseph, who's mm-hmm. complete fiction and people, you know, who liked the book said, I didn't know Houdini had a son. And I said, <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> so. As a spiritual son. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, wow. Yeah, I mean, Michael Shabon is really like, I mean, Tolkien aside, because I'm a total nerd. Okay. Um, but like, Shabon is like, that's it, man. My, yeah, Yiddish Policeman's Union, like, mm-hmm. that, the conceit of that book, which is phenomenal. Um, you know, Moon Glow, like, I, I, I just, everything he does, I mean, his writing is so, so beautiful. Uh, yeah, I agree. And like, so, you know, other than him, I, I think that um, Murakami has really mm-hmm. captured my attention in the last couple of years. Um, yeah. Donna Tart, uh, the, the Goldfinch was such a yeah. beautiful novel. And that was one of those rare books for me where I didn't want it to end. And I was actually even really impressed with the film adaptation. I thought it did a very uh, good job of honoring the source. I was going to ask you what you thought, what you thought about that's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a challenge in its own right, really kind of, and that's not a small book. It's not like this kind of right. quick read through. So like, there's a lot there to parse and kind of turn into. Um, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, the it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think film is probably like the first sophisticated, uh, you know, media or medium that a lot of storytellers get into because it is, you can, you can see a lot of different films in the period it takes you to read one book. So you're, right. you're you are dabbling at a higher rate um, in those things. And yeah, I mean, Spielberg is that kind of, there, something is different is happening here. Mm-hmm. Kind of when you, when you see how, he, you know, he crafts a film. Um, yet yeah, American Beauty, that that movie blew me away. Um, the English Patient was another really mm. powerful film for me, and I wasn't young. I mean, I was probably thirty ish, you know, around that point when that I, maybe I don't know. I, I don't remember when it came out, but that is one of my absolute uh, probably before thirty. But that was a go to film for me. Um, oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I mean, when I went to film school, one of the books that I loved 
the most was In the Blink of an Eye by Walter Murch. And mm. he edited The English Patient and yeah. he edited in, uh, The Conversation. Like these really, you know, important <laughs> films. Movie. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like, to me, what I love about movies, I've been able to basically take with me into my comic book work. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really think about it in those terms until uh, the first comic I ever got published was um, Southern Dog through Action Lab. And uh, a friend of mine who I went to film school with, who still actually works in the industry, uh, he told me that he thought that I had gotten the furthest than any, anybody we knew in the film program. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not even working in film. And he said, right. no, no, like this comic book is it. Like you, you, you wrote a script, you directed yeah. it, you shot it, you produced it, you oh, edited yeah. it. Like that is in an, in an, it's a proof of concept for a perfect movie. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think about that a lot because I get to sort of tell these cinematic stories and I'm not beholden to a budget necessarily like Ooh. i'm not thinking about oh i need to get this financing to then make this thing and then hopefully have distribution like you know it's a bit more streamlined in comics there are teams involved obviously and you know if if anybody in my team falls short for any reason or if life, life gets in the way then the whole thing stalls which you know that happens but generally speaking you know it's sort of limitless as far as the scope i could tell these grand stories with these amazing sets and these amazing locations and yep. all this action and yep. It's really just up to me and my co-creator to make it happen. Do you so here's a here's a question about the the idea of budget because you know we don't live in we don't live in a, a, a you know vacuum anymore of comic creation where it's like I'm making a comic and then that's it, it comes out in November and that's mm -hmm. the only time it's ever seen unless you're so lucky that it gets collected into a trade paperback, you know. Like com the the 90 what 98 99% of all comics ever made are never reprinted you know it's just oh one one and done you know mm -hmm. uh, so but we have a we, we live in a time and create create all these works now with this secondary thought that we can't avoid you know when we're making them to say like well what if this became a tv show what if this became a movie mm -hmm. so is there any sort of like tail wagging the dog kind of thought process in your creation that you do you entertain that or do you just go nope i need to tell the story i need to tell or i mean that's a very good question i, I think that initially i want to just tell a comic book story mm -hmm. like that's the medium i'm going with and that's what i'm focused on yeah. um but i think just the type of stories that i end up developing and pitching and the ones that do get published you know i'm trying to produce something that is meaningful to me but also has mass appeal yeah. And I think just, you know, the byproduct of that is that it tends to be, you know, uh, adaptable uh -huh. just in, an, in the nature that I create these stories, you know, and I think of them like films or TV shows, to be quite honest. So it's not a far stretch that, you know, some of those things find a second life, um, yeah. but it's never really my intent. But I'm also honestly like the reality is that's for comic book creators that's where the money is well sure um, so. yeah like it, you know it, in the 90s it used to be your book sold you know 300,000 copies 500,000 <laughs> copies and that's that's where you made your money you know mm -hmm. i you know i yeah no i lived off of royalties mm -hmm. you know because you, you if you weren't working on a regular basis but if you were on a book that sold well you made money it, yeah. it was 
it was a really, you know, interesting time. And those times, that's not this time anymore. You know, they, right. there's, it's a much smaller number. There's a much wider, you know, it's like cable. There's so many more channels now. So you can really find stories that are interesting. Um, but, you know, there's only a couple channels, you know, there's an ESPN, you know, bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, and you know, there's there's a Fox News that's the X Men, you know, and you get them, you know, and that and those get great ratings, you know, and you get big big numbers there. But it's a real, it's a really interesting time of, but there's a respectability to the creators who are making. Well, here's what I found. Quiet Siri. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a respectability in some sense with the, um, you know, the creators that you know, what we consider the more advanced uh, medias like television and film are saying, well, hey, we're really interested in what you can, you came up with. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, better for worse, you know, we don't, we'll, we'll see. Time will tell. Um, I mean, you know, made, made in Korea definitely it's got that vibe, you know, like I, I could see that as a series, like it, it would be like an HBO kind of one of those beautiful things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see it as, uh, at the very least, I'd love to see it as like a limited series, like an yeah. eight episode one and done kind of thing. I, I see the power in those those shows that go that very um, confident route of just being like, like yeah. Watchmen on HBO was an amazing adaptation of the source material. Yes. And, I, and I think that, you know, it's a testament to Damon Lindelhoff, who wanted a writer's room that was diverse and... He's openly said the best ideas in that show came from a person of color or a woman in the writer's room and that he would only be willing to sort of pass that torch forward if it was one of those two people that wanted to take it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't need more than that. And, yeah. and I, I, you know, I like shows that go on for, you know, X amount of seasons because, sure. you know, I love those characters. But I think that there's something, you know, a bit more powerful and poignant if you just know exactly what you want and know well, exactly what you're doing and it's like this is what i'm setting out to do and i'm done and that's it yeah and let, i mean let's 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 equate it to you know to the balance beam you know yeah. in the olympics <clears throat> you could do all that beautiful fancy flippity do stuff up there but it, you're judged on the landing like that Ooh, landing yeah makes and breaks <laughs> the best balance beam you know that's a great analogy. I haven't thought of it that way. The landing so, is really where it's at. And and it really is. Like, so for like when you're doing a series, regardless of what it is, whether it's a film series, television series, or comic book series, or a book series, for that matter. Ugh. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm writing a book series. So that just made me think like, I got to make that book good. Um, <laughs> it It's that thing where you have to say like, I mean, it is that ending, that ending and how you wrap it up, you know, because I I mean, Damon must have learned massive lessons on, you know, his first huge effort um, and how they didn't stick the landing. And then, you know, so where do you move forward from that? And by the way, your description of the people in the writer's room who they he was taking the greatest ideas from perfectly fits our friend and writer in that writer's room, Jeff Jensen. No, he's not. He's not a woman or a person of color. <laughs> Old <laughs> white dude. <laughs> yeah, we went. We went to. We went to school with Jeff, so we're allowed. We're oh, we have awesome. carte blanche to make fun of the guy until the day, until big giant meteor in the sky smashed yeah. down. And and he will. Love, he loves it. So yeah, he's the best. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it, you know, and I, I, yeah, I mean. 
I would love Mark Romanic to film that film uh, that mini series of your show of Made Me mm. Korea as a limited series. I just he makes great robots. Mm. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I also I definitely did contemplate on how how far I was going to go with the hard science of my story. I, I definitely didn't want to go too far because it really I thought would just serve nothing more than a distraction from from the characters mm -hmm. and and the story at large. Um, and I actually I was talking about it with my one of my brothers who is a visual effects artist. And, I mean, he, he actually worked on Watchmen the film. I mean, he texture painted the the comedian's uh, pin. Oh, cool! Blood Spider, which is pretty cool. And he's you know worked. He was the lead texture painter on um, the Killmonger suit and Black Panther. So like he's got huge credits under his name. Um, and he actually worked. He was a lead texture painter on Chappie. So. I was asking him about like the reality if this was if Made in Korea was to be adapted in a live action thing, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And he he read the book and he was like, you know, it's interesting that you don't really feature a lot of like robotics and and hard science aspects because that actually helps with a budget. Like the things yeah. that yeah, especially when when Jesse gets damaged, uh, in the way in which he gets damaged doesn't need practical effects he said that that could be full cg which actually streamlines production it can can lower costs mm -hmm. um so he said you know that's that's kind of actually good that you didn't go too far into that and i was like oh that's that's a, a kind of neat thing to kind of contemplate did you just quickly say well that's what i was thinking <laughs> i mean i think uh, sort of like I mean, you know, when I was writing it and when I was finished with it, I definitely let myself daydream about sure. the, the second life it could take. And um, yeah, I definitely would love to see it as as an episodic show rather than a film. I think yeah. it could work for both, but I, I definitely think it would be more interesting because there's just so many things I didn't get to explore in the original storyline that um, could get explored in the show. I mean, the first issue alone, there's so many things that I, I introduced that I never really explored, like really other families and their proxies yeah uh within the the vicinity of bill and sue Lin when they adopt jesse how are the other families responding to the fact that their proxy gets to go to school sure and it's like in texas i know i having grown up there for a few years i could totally see other families kind of getting you know um envious and then kind of causing some sort of conflict at the school like you know i think my proxy should go to school and like you know that's a whole that could take on a whole season of a tv show and so like you know it's interesting I yeah think that's, i think that's the i mean that's listen that's one of the beauties of science fiction is that science fiction repositions and reconfabulates you know our reality whatever it is and just puts it into a different environment whether this is just sort of near future you know in your in your sense or far-flung future it doesn't matter we have this ability to say what is it about being a human and you get to explore these facets of humanity um and so that you know that whole side thing right there that you just described that would be a fantastic you know venture you know like i mean we we always look at like I mean, I'm, I'm blanking on sort of examples of it, but there are examples that you somebody comes back to a story, but they're telling you from a different point of view of something and you're getting to experience a whole new sort of vision of what you already loved, but in a different from a different POV. I have a good example of this. Thank I you. just watched it was Ghostbusters Afterlife. There you go. Perfect. Like that was 
it was such a fun movie because it hits on all the notes that I love about the originals. Mm-hmm. Um, but it tells just a, a a new story of of basically a new generation of ghost busting, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I think that it can be hard to tackle those things, like to honor the fans. Yeah. Um, which I think is also really interesting about fandom. I, I think that it it can really change um, that second life to a to a property because you know. Uh, it's not it's not yours anymore it's really shared by you know a whole lot of people yes and that and, and that's you know that is i mean like i, I think you know listen for, I'll, I'll be eternally 11 whatever how old i was when star wars came out you know mm-hmm. there's like that's my connection to star wars it's this little kid who just wants to be flying around in the millennium falcon and you know that kind of stuff so like I you know I watch the stuff that the Disney Channel makes and it's great you know I'm like oh my god mm-hmm. so cool and you know Fabro's like invented the whole new yeah. way of making films and it's unbelievable and I, I love it but it's also like it's not for me like they're not making it for me they're you know they're doing a huge fan servicey kind of thing but it's, mm. it's it is focused for that eleven year olds still like you know like keep making that eleven year old wow 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 stuff. And people like me are going to come back to it regardless because we're hoping to see the Millennium Falcon or something, you know, in the yeah. back. Um, like what JJ did in in the first reboot of the Star Wars or whatever the, you know, when they go running by the Millennium Falcon, they don't focus on it, you know. So, you you know, it's it's kind of cool rather than sort of they went to the Millennium Falcon and they all were, you know. So, so you don't feel um, as connected to, say, something like the Mandalorian? Um, Does it just not feel like your Star Wars? The I, I find the Mandalorian to be probably one of my favorite things. I I'm not feeling it with the book of Boba Fett as much mm. as I want. Which, as I made a really dumb graphic the other day, the what did I call it? Dances with Bantha. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So. Because you saw the issue, you saw the one where he's crossing yeah. it. Yeah. Well, the whole the whole st- I mean, the whole thing is dances with wolves that were yeah. <laughs> pretty much yeah you know, mixed mixed with sort of like what would have been like the fourth, you know, movie in the Yojimbo cycle. You know what I mean? Like where he finally becomes like the gang leader. You know that would have been like it had a Kurosawa done the fourth mm. film, you know, with Mufune and like he, he's the, he becomes the bad guy at the end. That would have been really cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel I like connected to with the Mandalorian. I didn't feel as connected to um, Rogue Squadron in a, in a sense, because I, I have a very strong sort of storytelling issues with mm. the idea of, t- like, in my humble opinion, Darth Vader is the um, the greatest cinematic villain. Like, mm. he, he just changed the way z- cinema yeah. presented villains, and he's the villain. And his entry in the first Star Wars movie is this, whoa, you know, moment. But then they finish off Rogue, whatever, Rogue One with that. Well, what's interesting, though, about Rogue One is that that ending to Rogue One, to be honest, for me, like, you know, I was obviously too young to see the the original trilogy in the theater but you would, i definitely you would be the best looking human being in the world <laughs> if that was the case and and but i remember watching those films but i don't remember being truly terrified of vader until i saw rogue one and saw what he was like 
there's something there was just a more aggressive aggressiveness to the way they filmed that last sequence of him and i was like whoa like i now get it i now get why he is so scary and it was just interesting that it didn't really come through in the original films for me but um yeah i mean it it, i i guess i'm missing that context too like to see a villain like that and then to realize his connection to the protagonist was also probably, you know, very new to an right. audience. I mean, and, and I mean, you know, unfortunately, like, you know, the, the three prequel films, you know, below the, the ultimate, you know, that epic line from, you know, uh, Empire Strikes Back of, you know, I am your father, you know, like, like spoilers, um, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like but having three movies with Anakin Skywalker becoming Darth Vader kind of, kills that really emotional line mm-hmm. which means you can't watch those any of these movies in a in a cinematic chronological order you have to watch them you know in order that they were released versus episode one two three four because it right because as a viewer you need to still have like it'd be better to have those surprises happen to mm-hmm. you be you know an eight-year-old kid now and going you're like oh, i'm probably like, yeah we know that we saw that three movies ago you know like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be like boring you know so it's true yeah so um not sure why we're talking about all this um so like what movies like for you like when you were because you, you said you went to film school so clearly films were the the you know the thing for you so what were the films when you were young that locked you in um, I think, uh, I mean, I wasn't watching films growing up in any, like, you know, the way I was viewing them as a, as an adult, but like, right. you know, the ones that stick in my brain are definitely, I mean, I was watching some R-rated movies when I wasn't supposed to. So like yeah. the, the Robocop films really oh. stick in my brain, Total Recall. Uh, I guess, you know, Verhoeven stuff was very... Um... Did you write your names down every so often? Jeremy Verhoeven? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Princess Bride was introduced to oh, me from yeah. my oldest sister, which was a, a big influence. Um, and, uh, yeah, it wasn't until, like, high school that I started watching films and kind of deconstructing them. Um and the, the one that I really loved, and I, I really couldn't explain why I loved it so much, because nobody I knew wanted to watch it with me, is Dr. Strangelove. Oh, interesting. Um, and I, I'm not even going to say I'm a huge Kubrick fan, to be honest, but something about that movie, and I, I think I was just so drawn to Peter Sellers as an actor. Yeah. And, you know, I first saw him in the Pink Panther films, which mm-hmm. are still some of the funniest films I've ever seen. Um, Have you watched the old, old movies with sellers like there are these you know the the, the the sort of black like he was in um the original lady killers i haven't i i need to go back and watch some of those i, I did watch his last film that he made before yeah. he passed which is almost there which was almost there, yeah to me it was almost like the the prototype to force gump at least yeah. that's what i and I, I just found it a really interesting movie and a friend of mine said it was her all-time favorite movie i was like i've never heard of this movie like what yeah. um but I, I think his performance is really what what captivated me with um, Doctor Strangelove. But uh, and then I just sort of like my favorite filmmakers, I would say, are Darren Aronofsky. Um, nice. Like when I saw Requiem for a Dream, oof, that, that scarred me. That scarred me. Um, and then uh, Sofia Coppola, I love all of her films. Yeah. 
Um, and honestly, um, Alex Garland, now that he's making more movies and TV shows, like really is one of my favorite and Spike Jones for sure. Man, Spike is not making enough films in my opinion I know. because I'm just, yeah, I mean, Three Kings, that's it. No, that's not him. He, he starred in Three Kings. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He well, like her and like, her. um, why am I blanking on all these movies? No, no, I mean, like, well, I mean, well, John Malkovich is, of yeah, course, yeah, the, yeah, the Tour de Force one, but mm -hmm. and his, vi I mean, I mean, I, I just watched his, uh, his Kenzie ad over like, oh. The other like I, I will go on YouTube like Spike Lee hunts or Spike Jones hunts. I'm like I gotta find mm -hmm. whatever he did because his his ability to mix sort of like digital effects and you know with practical stuff is really unparalleled. It's it's beautiful. Yeah. I like to think the Beastie Boys are responsible for all of it. But oh that's... yeah, totally. I mean, just the fact that I'm pretty sure he got to start making music videos yeah. and and it's like yeah. really. You, it's cool to see that that progression of his his career and his artistic um, voice, um, but yeah, those are the filmmakers that really kind of stand out to me. Um, and yeah, I'm blanking on one other one, but uh, who's a, I can't remember her name. Uh, who uh, did Lady Bird? Oh, um, oh, I love her. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, uh, Greta Gerwig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Lady Bird might be just a perfect movie. It is so good. I loved it. And then when I saw Little Women, which, yes. to be honest, I never saw those the original films. I never read the book. But her version of it, mm -hmm. it was actually the only movie in the last, like, 15 years that I went back to see in the theater. I went to see it three times. Like, wow. yeah, something about Joe Marsh and, like, her wanting to write a novel was uh -huh. so... It, to me, she captures that that drive that that writers have to just yep. you know no one's saying you're going to do this no one's going to no one's saying you're going to succeed and yet right. you still ha you're compelled to do it anyway that nobody asks really inspiring that's the thing nobody asks you to sit down and spend ungodly hours mm -hmm. you know writing and rewriting the stuff no one's asking you to do that um, and 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 Saoirse Ronan I think is just Oh yeah, just so good. Um, okay. And yeah, that. So I, yeah, I, I yeah, I've I've seen probably most of Greta's work, you know, in the theaters because it's just, you know, it, I'm not the I'm not the age, you know, demo for, <laughs> for those right. movies, but they just ring so well. Um, they're yeah. great. Um, yeah. So were you? I mean, were you writing when you were like, like, were you write? Like, did you like? Honestly, you? no. I mean, like, I. I my my mom encouraged me to keep a journal, which I never did consistently. I think every time we moved, and we moved a lot, um, I would start a journal and never finished it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think my earliest memory of writing any piece of fiction was in elementary school. Uh, my school had this thing called the Writer's Workshop, and you could submit a story. And if you got selected, you got to leave class early to go work on your story. You had to illustrate it as well. And then it would get published, basically laminated. Right. And... I I got a story in which my my mom still has this book which is like my first published work ever, um, and so like that was my my first kind of introduction to writing fiction. But then I just never did it. And even in 
film school, there was no real screenwriting track at the time. Mm-hmm. So I went into the sound design, more of an editing capacity and um, falling into comics was a huge accident. And I really thought I was going to be working in tech as a career. Right. I still work in tech as a day job, but like, I really thought that was my career. And after, you know, several years, like six, seven years of it, I, I just realized I need to be creative. And I just happened to start reading comics again through my oldest brother. This is like back in 2008. And um, just seeing what what comic books are today and, and they're not what I remembered. And, you know, my brush with them as a kid was just basically a handful of X-Men comics from the 90s. Right. So like, I didn't really get exposed to just some really in-depth storytelling that's now, you know, kind of commonplace with comics. Well, what, I mean, so what was it like when you were sort of re, re-exposed um, to to it? Like, what were the things that sort of said you were like, whoa, this is so different? Did anything stand out? Oh, yeah. The, the Dark Knight Returns. It was the oh. first graphic novel I read ever. Right. And I read it and I said to my brother, I was like, this is where comic books are. And he's like, that's like 20 years old. Right. I was like, what? And so I, I, I was living in New York at the time. I, I you know, moved away for many years and get back. But um, I went to, you know, Forbidden Planet in Union Square and I just started reading comics and that's how I got into Vertigo. And that's when I started to understand what a creator on comic was because I didn't, there was nothing on the shelves with Marvel and DC that interested me. Like I didn't even feel compelled to read X-Men. I was just like, I need new, I want new. Right. I want, you know, new characters, new stories. And um, yeah, so it was reading those like Transmet and Preacher and DMZ and Scalped. And then when I read Why the Last Man, that was the series that I was like, I need, I need to try to write one of my own. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so it's kind of amazing now because the trade paperback in Maine, Korea, I was able to get a quote from Brian K. Vaughn, which has been printed that's on the cover. So it's like awesome. Kind that's of full phenomenal. Circle. That's so like so that's so kind of full circle. I love the series on Netflix or what is it? Hulu. Oh yeah, sure. Hulu. It was so Hulu. good. I so good. I, I feel like it's it tried to go in too many directions that were not part of the comic too yeah. early on in the show because it really picks up speed near the end. And it's the yeah. ending that I was like, this is what I was I've been waiting for in this show. It it hit all the marks that I loved about the comic, and now it's been canceled. And it's like Okay. Yeah, I was like, "What cancel? This is good. I'm di- I'm I'm into it. I want it. Yeah. I want more. It's like it's almost like The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's got that feel to it. And I'm like, oh, I want more. I you know, I think that's a that must be a tough thing when you're creating. You know, because I think that the idea of doing a very a limited series mm-hmm. is a is a pretty new concept for you know a, a television production company while. Yeah before there these these are shows of you know perpet you know perpetuity like, let's just keep these things going forever until people stop watching versus how do we you know get to that landing and i think that's where the you know and, and that probably should, that show probably would have benefited had they started maybe a year or two later when the idea of this limited sort of run hey we're doing four seasons and that's mm-hmm. it I think that if it was also going through something other than FX, I mean, I think if it had gone through like one of the streaming services and they just, you know, were throwing a ton of money and said, okay, make your episodes. Because I think they had to make a pilot and it had to go and get pitched around and stuff. And it's like that, that model is going away, which I'm glad because I, I just don't see how we can depend on TV executives to make these decisions for the viewers to be like, oh, like as if they know what we want to watch. Um, 
So yeah, and part of me really, if Main Korea ever gets adapted, a, a part of me would like to see it as limited series because it takes that pressure off of having to sustain something that is unsustainable. Yeah, and you know, there's I heard an interesting discussion about um, uh, pilots. Is that the pilot is so tonally different from a, the series because what they the writers consciously tried to do is show the extremes mm -hmm. of the, the main characters in this pilot. So the executives know, okay, how violent will the show be? How funny will this show be? How sexy will this show be? They need to show how far it will go in all those directions so they can go, all right, well, this is this, like, we'll never, we'll never be, you know, be offending anybody past these points all right, we're comfortable there, you know, versus, you know, you know, I don't think there was a pilot for better, better call Saul, you know, because, right. well, I guess there was, there was a whole series, but, yeah. um, you know, but they like, they're just telling the story to an end, you know, mm -hmm. whenever we get, whenever it comes back. Yeah. Um, I needed to come back. Cause that's actually the only thing I watched while I was quarantined. It's I, such I, a good show. It's so, it, I have to, I will admit that the cliffhangers for the episodes aren't super strong. They seem mm -hmm. to end very abruptly, but um, yeah, I mean, to your point, uh, I think a, a while ago, several years ago, I stopped writing pitches uh, in the sense of, you know, I used to just do five, six to eight pages of completed art for the pitch. Right. And I stopped doing that years ago because I didn't, I, I found myself being forced into this corner of trying to feature so much in mm. a small p amount of time, which, and the stuff I was featuring wasn't entirely important to the overall story. It was just to get eyes on these art pages. Yeah. And I stopped doing that and, and I started doing complete issues. So like I, I would, you know, George was one of the, you know, rare co-creators who was willing to do a full issue as, as a pitch, so to speak, wow. because I, I don't want to end to, you know, that, that editor who's looking for this, you know, sexy pitch. I, I, I want them to see where the potential um, and I want to pace it the way I want to pace it. I don't want to be forced to pace it in this truncated six to eight page pitch. Yeah. Do you, I mean, so what, I mean, what, well, I mean, cause that's, I guess, I mean, that really kind of eliminates a lot of challenges uh, that often you're faced with, you know, for that six, cause those are those pitch pages. They're kind of, they're kind of, you know, vaulted, you know, they don't mm -hmm. really, and they're because they're kind of hard to incorporate into unless you write that first issue with a six page, you know, sort of exactly how wham zam moment, which blows everyone's mind. But it seems like you're really kind of putting the cart before the horse because it seems to be sort of a, you want to build to whatever that sort of level is. And those six pages, mm -hmm. not in not in book one. Um, yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. So now how do you now how do you go about doing that? Because I mean, for anybody who is like, so like, because I mean, that's a that's a that's a big commitment for you and for the and, and for an artist or an art team. Yeah, I mean, I've only been able to do it twice, to be honest, like George yeah. is, is the second co-creator. Uh, the other was um, Alex Diotto, who uh, we've done two books together and um, our book uh, Skip to the End was one of those instances where I wasn't going to try to truncate the pitch and I, and Alex was willing to do a full issue. Mm -hmm. um, and it, to me, it, it's sort of the way I want to do it, but it's also sort of a Hail Mary. Like I, I there's no guarantee that it's going to go anywhere, but at the very least, you know, we're kind of doing it the way we want to do it. Right. Um, 
and both books took years to finally get the green light. Like okay. both those books, I was convinced we're going to just live in the pitch graveyard. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did you find like, was there, did you find a champion at, at, at a point? Like how did that turn? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely in both instances, there was somebody on the inside of, of these publishers that really wanted to see it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I, I give a lot of credit to um, my friend, Tim Daniel, who's also, we co-wrote a graphic novel together, but uh, Tim is handling a lot of the um, production aspects at Vault Comics, but he's also a very talented writer yeah. and uh, designer. Uh, he's designed most of my logos. Um, but he was at the time um, working, doing production uh, stuff for Heavy Metal. And that's who originally published the four issue series um and then it moved over to inside comics and the uh editor there uh mark Irwin, was a huge fan of it and really pushed it through Mm -hmm. and then with main korea um marla isaac who's the executive assistant um at image who's basically i the way i see it is basically Er eric stevenson's right right hand person um she definitely was the one who kept putting it on his desk and like i i mean it, it was like about a year and I and I even I remember writing to her shortly after like New York Comic Con several years ago where I was like can we just call time of death like I, I just need to move on with my life right. <laughs> and it had been a year and like based on images submissions I said if you don't hear back in 30 days consider it rejected right um but I I've had enough experiences with Eric Stevenson personally where I knew I had some leeway so I wasn't I didn't necessarily have to adhere to that that 30-day deadline um but yeah, I don't know what she did or what she said, but she was the one who wrote me and said, yeah, we're going to do this. That's amazing. That's, yeah. I mean, when you hear those stories of people who are like, who so-and-so, you know, kept, you know, lobbying or dropping, you know, bringing it back or whatever the thing was or mentioning it in meetings, you know, mm-hmm. it like, I think those, there are those people, you know, in our, in our lives who sort of save us, you know, for, for one way or another. Yeah. And something that Marla said uh, when I was on a panel with her during San Diego Comic-Con at home last summer, she said something that I, I had never really considered. What's and that? so when people submit to image, she sees a lot of the pitches. And she said in, in this panel, she said, I have a folder that I move pitches of creators that I think are getting there. And so oh. when you get when you get rejected, don't think that we forget who you are. Hmm. So, I mean, it's important to consider that for a couple of reasons. One, keep producing good work, keep, you know, improving your, your craft, but also keep being a good person. Like don't get, you know, vindictive or angry or, or defensive when you get a rejection. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And, and that's what I've told people who other creators who've approached me at conventions, like, you know, asking for advice. It's like, you know, you just have to stay humble and you got to keep working at it. And you're, everything you create should be better than the last thing. And so she told me that, you know, I was one of those people that kept showing up in this folder. And then when Maiden Creator came along, she was like, this is what I was looking for. Right. This was someone who has been working towards a, like a really good book. Yeah. Um, and it took years, really. And so that's something to really keep in mind that editors are you know have their kind of eyes on on certain creators 
Sure. I mean, it's like the, it's like the story bucket idea we were talking to. You, you've got your ideas of stuff and you mm -hmm. put them away because you need them, you know, and, and you're going to, and like, and they may not be the best idea when you, when you toss it in there, but you might be able to like graft on another thing. And next thing you know, you have that idea. And I think that's like with the, the creative thing of having someone looking, you know, cause they are looking, I, I think we you know, we forget that like, they're not in business if they don't have comics, you know, exactly. being created. So they are looking. And what struck me is the thought of like, you know, that in, in, instinct or maybe the common thought is like, oh, well, do good work. But that's not the thing. It's do better work. Yes. Because your work can be good. It's just not there yet or it's not the right thing for the right time. So always just do better work. You Do you do that thing? Great job. You know, A, you did it. You finished it. These are huge accomplishments, but do better work, mm -hmm. make it better the next time and keep, you know, keep striving for it because it's a challenge. It is. It's a grind. And, um, and I think that's all, what's also important is, I mean, obviously it's important to have goals. It's important yeah. to kind of see where you want to go, mm -hmm. but I think something equally as important, if not more important is to, to move those goalposts because for years, I, I just fixated on getting published by Image and be, being a full-time writer. And right. when those things weren't happening, I quit so many times. I mean, yeah. I, I, I can't even count on both hands how many times I've quit and just like, I'm done. And it wasn't until I decided to change, to move that goalpost and say, it's okay to have a day job. Like right. it's in fact, I'm not quite ready to change my relationship with the creative work to the point where I'm depending on my income for it. Yeah. So I'm okay with a day job. And once I started to realize that, I actually found more satisfaction in the day job. And I was writing just because I love to write, not because it needed to get me somewhere. Um, it's... And and then I just stopped quitting because I, I kind of rediscovered my love for, for telling stories. Right, right. Yeah, it's um, that's such an inspirational way of putting it you know, because I mean, we've all been in that point, you know, with whatever yeah. the thing is and, you know, we're all screaming and yelling out in this ether of whatever it is that we're making. And it's really frustrating that you don't, that you don't get this sort of response that you hoped to get um, mm -hmm. because you certainly don't need it. You shouldn't need it because if that's, that's going to really change your relationship with whatever you're creating is if you need that uh, feedback. Um but that's super, super strong. Um, but that doesn't. But that doesn't say you're not saying you don't have the goal of sustaining yourself. You know, with as a writer, because that's you know that's a you know that is the dream. You know, uh, for anybody who's making something to make the thing and make that the thing that's you know putting food on the table all you know all we all the time. Um, do you feel? Yeah. Do you feel you're getting closer to that? I definitely think so. I mean, you know, I knew once I got a book through image, certain doors that have have long been locked to me yeah. have, have now opened. So, um, I mean, just in the year that the whole series came out and like leading into this year, like there are opportunities that have come my way that never happened in, in over 10 years. Like I'm, I'm doing work at the big two, which I sort of never really anticipated or even wanted because I was so fixated on this one thing. Um, but I also know from all of my friends that have done books at Image and to see where their careers have gone, um, it's 
there are these certain tracks that you fall into, which are like good things. Like you do a good series of image and it gets enough attention. Uh, people are going to be interested in what you're working on. Yeah. Um, and you just have to be ready for that moment. And I've really been, that's what I've been working towards both just big picture. And even, you know, on a smaller scale of when those people come knocking, not only am I ready with ideas, but also I've cultivated a process that I can depend on. Like, you know, the first Marvel short I did last summer, it was a last minute thing. And I was given five days, like oh, wow. okay. five days. We need a pitch and a completed script in five days. And I, I was in the middle of moving from Vermont to Brooklyn. So okay. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I knew my process. I was like, if the editor goes for my idea, I can literally script this in three hours. Right. Um, and I did. And there were like, you know, maybe two rounds of notes and it was done. So, um, and that's something I was working towards. Like, I don't think I would have been prepared um, or even capable of doing it like six years ago. Yeah. What, I mean, what do you think the major challenges that you have, I guess, addressed in your process and your your approach to it and your relationship to it um, have made the difference for you? Like, um, I, I think just understanding how I, I formulate ideas and how huh? I, the process at which I craft them. Um, but as far as like, work for higher stuff it's just you know having a having a process like outlining is huge for me that's where my creative lifting is uh if i can turn out an outline writing the script is essentially for me almost transcribing my outline mm -hmm. um and things will change naturally as i'm writing them but i've created a process where i'm inadvertently editing uh along the way so by the time i submit a script it's essentially been edited at least three times um by myself which was something i had to figure out because i hate to edit and i'm not even a good editor like i'm i'm bad at proofing um i don't like rereading things so like having a process where I, I have to make sure that it gets refined through this sort of um uh sequence of events for me writing wise um mm -hmm. is helpful Nice. What I mean, so what I mean, what is your methodology approach to that? I mean, one of them for me is I use um I use pro writing aid to drag my stuff through it to make sure that I'm not too far off reservation in in the terms of a uh, grammar or uh you know passive voice or any of these things that'll uh, I don't up. use any of that. <laughs> I use a basic spell check, I think. Sure. Um I should probably look into something like that, but um send you a link yeah <laughs> thanks um but for me it's really the the big part is um just crafting a compelling story that gets the whoever's reading it turning pages right and you were saying that you, your process sort of has you editing it like so what do you like like one of the processes that i use for writing is i do what i what i call like sort of a setting pass a character pass and a voice pass. Mm. So I'll write something and then I'll go through it and then I will sort of be attentive to, am I addressing the setting properly? Like, is, is everything being kind of dealt with in the environment of what the what the story is taking place? And then I go, mm -hmm. are the characters on point and are they, or am I featuring them the way that I need to be featuring them? They are the right way to do them right way. And then finally, the voice pass, you know, and going through and is the, is the language of the characters speaking or in the case of the prose is the prose, you know, mm -hmm. pretty ish. Um, 
like that's that's kind of how so that's my basic process um what's like how do you go, go through your well you sound way more professional than me <laughs> um for me it's it's way way more simplified i i come up with like uh, a brief paragraph pitch um and then if if i like that i will extend it to at least one page of a synopsis broad strokes of the story and then from that if if i'm happy with that then i will um break it down based on 20 to 22 page chapters or issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and along that way, as I'm basically breaking down the synopsis into these issue breakdowns, uh, the story starts to sort of evolve and change from, from the synopsis. So by the time it gets to the script, there are noticeable changes, but it's still within the framework of the synopsis. Um, and the only as far as passes I do is really just, I, I don't write any dialogue until the very end. Like when I'm writing a script, when I'm scripting it from the outline, I might make notes for dialogue, but like I literally will write the dialogue at very last. That's cool. Um, because the dialogue is where I get hung up the quickest and the longest. Um, but I think that the, the the side effect of doing that is when I reread some of my work, once it's like in art form, uh-huh. I don't remember writing some of this stuff. Like I've reread Main Korea and I'm like, Man, that's a good line. I don't remember how I came up with that. <laughs> um, because it's really just on the cuff of just rereading the, the script and just yep. punching up dialogue. Um, but that's really what I do. Um, and I think that with how many movies I've watched, it definitely has influenced me because I've been I've been approached by people outside of comics to they've encouraged me to try to write, you know, a pilot script or a screenplay. Um, to try to move into the film TV space, mm-hmm. which I have interest in doing. It's never really anything I set out to do. But um, the thing that's been a huge deterrent was I just was like, I don't I don't really understand the three-act structure. And I'm just too lazy to go and research all that stuff right now because I'm still, there's so many more comics I want to tell. Sure. And there was a graphic novel I did back in 2019 called Virtually Yours, which is a romantic comedy set in New York City. And I love rom-com, so it was a, a lot of fun to write. Um but there was film and TV interest in it. And uh, this production studio reached out to me and uh, they really liked it. And they said, um, you wrote a perfect three X structure. <laughs> I was like, are you sure? Yeah. Like, uh, okay. And I, I was like, wow, have I watched so many movies that I just kind of subconsciously know how these things are supposed yes. to move along narratively. Yes. I said, hey. yes. Absolutely. I, I, and I'm, yeah. you know, I took I took my whole my whole manuscript and I ran it through what's sort of a kind of a five sort of part structure of a story. Mm-hmm. It's a three act structure, but there are these things at intervals that happen in between the first and the third and the you know. So you you, you can get these points, and it should happen at the twenty five percent point of your thing, the fifty percent, yada yada yada. So I go through my thing and I went to those pages, and those moments were happening, you know, in this you know, 150,000 word book. And I go, amazing. Okay. So that work, it, it does work if you feel it. Like if you are, mm-hmm. when you're writing the story, you kind of get that sense of like, okay, something needs to happen. Like we need to get to that thing and that, you know, that's the next thing. Um, and so while you may not have that sort of, I don't really feel confident with the third, third, third act or three act structure, you you know it like you're because I mean, you're putting them into each issue like they're there yeah. fuel yeah. 
rhythm it, it's there um and you know and it's it, going back to what you said about the, the the waiting to the end to script it like i think like i what i'm what i'm hearing is that okay well, i'm going to write a story and tell the story that i want to tell and then there's going to be other people who are going to take the words that are right here and make it a visual thing that's going to make it you know sensibly better so you know i've got help here now the words for what the characters are saying that's on me and yeah. that, like that's the 100 jeremy part that's on the page everything else you know well not 100 because the letterer is helping out in, in sure. your in the way that goes but it's really like it becomes much of an un, much less varnished version of what you're putting down so there's probably a higher level of oh okay i gotta do this you know this part of it that's a good point and and honestly the the reason i started doing that uh, it was advice i got from joe casey years ago um which was his writing process at the time and i've come to understand that he changes his process every few years so like okay. which is to me mind-boggling but um also really it was the perfect solution at the time for me because i was writing these scripts that i was getting so many emails with co-creators who were like what's happening in this panel i don't really understand and uh, it was because i was so fixated on the dialogue i wasn't really writing great panel descriptions okay. and that's where i was failing as the comic book writer where right. if, so by taking out the dialogue the the exercise for me was to write a script where the artist could ostensibly understand what's going on with without a single word spoken and uh -huh. and for me that was forcing me to think very visually when when writing the panel descriptions so there was i was taking out all the guesswork for the artist yeah um and and it was just you know saving the dialogue but you're right like i think there was a lot of this a lot of pressure for me to write these interesting lines of dialogue and i think actually the first film that i saw that really captivated me regarding dialogue was um, Kevin Smith's Clerks and Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Sure. Like those films were so dialogue heavy and there was such um, a style to it. Yes. It palpable. And it's like, I, I think I've been kind of chasing that ever since. No, I, I, to I totally agree. I, I would I would add another person into that mix would be Aaron Sorkin. Oh, like, yeah. You know, these these writers and well, fuck, Mamet too. Why don't we add mm -hmm. Mamet into that collection there? But like they're these writers who write with such cadence and rhythm and power in in their in their language. And it's like and, and I mean really that scale goes from like Smith all the way up to Mamet, you know, like I mean, like mm -hmm. like there's this sort of range of you know, super machismo, you know, like with the Mamet world and then like this sort of like this sort of like light you know introspective kind of writing of you know smith and you know and, and then what's in between but it's like like i want to watch that uh, being the ricardo's movie because oh yeah Dorkin wrote it and directed it and you know and it's got a great cast i'm like i gotta see this thing yeah sorkin is a good example because to me there is a sort of melody to to his yes. dialogue and yep. I, when i'm writing dialogue it it has to hit my ear a certain way. Yeah. The way a conversation starts and the way the conversation ends, um, especially when you might have some dialogue bleeding over into another panel as a voiceover. Yeah. Um, like I, to me, the, the dialogue has to almost play out like a song to me. Mm -hmm. No, I think, I mean, it's super important. And I think that's kind of like the, uh, you know, the dream, you know, like as, as you're writing is like, I think ultimately like we, 
you know, we want to write a great setting and we want to have a great, you know, plot and we want to have great themes and all this stuff. But, you know, part of it is like we are really judged on like the characters and how they speak, because that is the that's the language of the of the story. Um, that's the, you know, that's sort of that auditory, you know, part of it all. And I think we have the. Yeah, no, and that, that's the part I'm always like, I'm like, oh, this is going to suck. I'm sure it sucks. It sucks. It's got to suck. It sucks. You know, that's, you, you live, you know, that's where you live in there. But um, yeah, that's so, that's, yeah. No, but I, I yeah, I mean, I, I'm totally like riveted by great, beautiful dialogue, whether it's, on, you know, on the printed page or on screen of some sort. There's just this beauty to it because, you know, I mean, it goes back to Shakespeare. I mean, it really, yeah. you know, you, uh you know, when you, when you watch a live perform, not live, but I mean, but, but a, you know, not reading Shakespeare, but watching Shakespeare it, mm-hmm. when performed by real, real masters, it, it's transparent. It just goes right through you. So. Yeah. I, I feel like I had that experience watching uh, Wes Anderson's latest film, the French dispatch. Mm-hmm. It is easily his most ambitious film. There's something about it that reminds me of his first film, Bottle Rocket. Yeah. In some weird ways, but like the the words, the script that he wrote, there are some scenes where I paused it and I was just like, it's like when you read this really great passage in a novel and you just stop and you go, oh, I got to yeah. reread that. Yeah. And I haven't had that experience recently with watching a movie and I, I honestly, I don't know a lot of people that like the French Dispatch. I really enjoyed it, um, but it's definitely worth a watch just from from a writing standpoint, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think the the triumvirate of you know was it was it not is it more than a triumvirate? It's a quad 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 triumvirate. I don't know what the hell the word would be, but uh, but like between you know Wes Roman Coppola, um, oh come on, uh, Owen Wilson and oh Sportsman. Um, Mm-hmm. those four they they because you can hear their voices mm-hmm. you know on that screen you can hear each one of those characters you know when i hear that when i'm listening to those characters i'm like man that sounds like schwartzman talking oh that sounds like owen wilson like you can really hear them come through in those scripts mm-hmm. um, yeah I, I i love i love those those films they're just uh did you watch that um that short he did with schwartzman um as like a car a car racer going through yes the- yeah that was really good it was fantastic i love yeah. that it was beautiful it yeah was, it was- I, I his films like to me like he and and i'd say like uh guillermo del toro they really create these worlds that are just so enchanting and you just want to get lost in and you know i i had this really great fortune of of going to milan many many summers ago and I went to this bar, Bar Luce, that he had designed, and to Wait, just no, spend. Toro or, uh, sorry, Wes Anderson. Okay. So okay. like it, it's this, it's it's like stepping into Wes Anderson's brain, and he designed oh. a, a a cafe that was a cafe by day and a bar by night, where he's like, you know, you work all day and then you enjoy a cocktail in the evening. Okay. And, and I spent like three days there just outlining a novel I was working on, and it was just like, it was just magical, and it and it's it was cool to be in this tangible space and you know, his, his fingerprints were all over it. Like just the way it was designed, laid out everything, every small detail was his. Um, And it's just like, it's amazing that, that 
filmmakers or, or storytellers or creatives can eventually get to that point where they're creating something that's entirely their own and it's their signature and it's no one else's. Well, I think, you know, it, you know, you mentioned Shabon early, you know, in, in our talk. And I think what's interesting is that to me, he is a speculative fiction writer mm -hmm. because he's creating a world, but it's a world just slightly off to one side. So there, he has space to make something different in the world, you know, like, mm -hmm. so rather than there being Israel, there's a Sitka Island in, in Alaska. That's the Holy Land. Um, you know, so like he does these little shifts. And I think like what you were saying about Wes Anderson, um, you know, and, and Guillermo del Toro is that both of those people do the exact same thing where there's a speculative fictional world that they're creating, which, mm. is, you know, it's not Jacques Cousteau, it's Steve Zissou, yeah. you yeah. know? And so you live in this, you live in this different world um, and you get to, you know, so who, uh, oh God, the, the French director who did like um, Amelie and Mick Max. Oh yeah. 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 Same um, kind of, Mm -hmm. Same mm -hmm. kind of thing. You're like you're in this like you're, you're just in the shifted world of these creators where you're like, oh, I, like I want to live here. I want to be in this, you know. Um, and I think that's you know, I mean, I think that's like, I don't know. For me, that's kind of like that gold brass brass ring brass ring, you know, kind of thing for when you're creating a product, uh, you know, whether it's a you know a comic or a book or whatever the thing is that like can the reader feel like I'm in a world and I yeah. want to be in this world? Um, yeah. And, and on that note, I mean, I, I was really happy to sort of push myself just from a production standpoint of bringing on six different artists to tell six different proxy stories in the back of each issue mm -hmm. uh, because I did not have enough room in the, in the, the main narrative to explore, you know, the life of a proxy with a different family. Right, and I wanted to expand that world. Yeah, I wanted the reader to see there are so many, excuse me, different avenues that you can go with this. Yeah, like these. Are, yeah, I mean, they're, they're totally cool to have to have to do that. Was that any? Was there any chance? Like, was there any pushback with um, Image in doing that? Were they like no? Very they just they were just like you know this is the page count fill it however you want and I was like well I don't want to fill it with ads so. Right. Um, it, you know, there was enough lead time that it didn't totally stress me out, but there was definitely a, a point where early on I was like, I don't want to do this because it, to me, it was almost like wrangling cats. Like, you know, it, it's hard enough to keep the main team on schedule yeah. than to bring on six other teams, essentially. We um, totally understand what you're saying, dude. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Yeah, we did, we did our Kickstarter with, you know, five, five, other, you know, five creative oh, teams. And it was intense. It was a lot of work. It was a lot mm -hmm. of work. And, you know, really, everyone was great. It's just, but it wasn't like, it wasn't sort of like, okay, we're done. Like there was, there was things to be addressed and, you know, stuff to happen. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that instinct. That's not, you know, you're, you're not, yeah. you're not, you're not crazy. I, that. I, I definitely streamlined it by saying the one requirement other than adhering to the rules of made in Korea is the artists had to do everything. Like I didn't want to have to manage small teams like the artists. And I specifically reached out to friends that I knew were capable of handling all aspects of production for themselves. Right. And that's, I mean, you know, and that's something that's, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, 
I'm, I'm still blown away by Cliff Chang doing everything for Catwoman. Mm, oh yeah. Like, I don't think people understand how much of a tour de force and a, such a flex that is um, to do that. And it, and it, and it works. It's not, it's not not being like it's like oh man like maybe you should have gotten a letter you know it's not one of those yeah. kind of things yeah like, really really wonderful um and you know getting people to do a lot you know a lot of heavy lifting is not everybody can do that um mm -hmm. it's not it's not a it's not a given that if you can draw a comic book page that you can also ink color and you know and letter that like there's there's a lot to do um and because it's it's a it's a it's a complex organism it definitely is. And, and that's great that he can do that. And a part of me is envious because he's one of those, you know, creators that's breathing this rarefied air of when yeah. people say, do you, do you draw it? He can say, yes. Do you write it? Yes. Yeah. Because I feel like as a writer, they're like, do you draw it? No. And my, every artist I know get asked, do you write it? No, I'm an artist. Like, and Cliff can just say yes to all of it without being annoyed. That's kind of amazing. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, it, like the credit should just be like, his name and like check boxes next to all those things with a check, you know, done. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And I'm super, I'm proud for, you know, for DC for saying, yeah, do it because yeah. it doesn't get done, you know, in the big two, it does not get done in the big two. There's just not that I've the, I've seen it happen as close as, co-writing co and then sure. somebody does everything else like it's sure. not done on a regular basis yeah and you know there are those artists that really stretch those those muscles to be able to do it all i think you know daniel warren johnson is another good example sure of someone who, who was just doing his own thing for a long time he was working on other people's stories but he was also fully capable of telling his own yep um and you know i think he's sort of getting that opportunity now yeah. And I, it's, you know, I mean, I guess the hardest part is that the reason it doesn't happen, it's simple, is comic books come out every month. Yeah. And you you can't do all that stuff and have a comic book come out every month. So when the publishers are now a little more cognizant of there's something else that can be offered to the public that's not just a monthly floppy. So, mm -hmm. so what, you're going to the book tour. Mm-hmm. That starts in well, uh, like ten days. So that let's why don't we give a date just in case because we're um, so it starts uh, with the trade comes out May twenty sixth on a Wednesday. Okay. So that is the kickoff to the tour. Um, so it's all going to be in New York City. Uh, right. The first the first day is going to be at Forbidden Planet in Union Square, um, mm -hmm. which is cool. Um, and yes. then the next night uh, is going to be at my friend's um, rooftop lounge uh called make believe so that's gonna uh involve an author talk so my friend uh young me mayor is a very famous comedian and co-host of the podcast feeling asian is going to moderate right on and uh friday is going to be at my good friend's comic book record store in brooklyn called vinyl fantasy and um another friend jeremy Nguyen, who's a uh, cartoonist for the new yorker he's going to be moderating uh that talk and then on Saturday, I'm going to be at uh, You and Me Books, which is in Chinatown, which is the first um, Asian American female-owned bookstore in New York City. Oh, right on! Um, and um, Marie Myung um, Ok Lee is a novelist, and she also teaches at Columbia University. She's going to be moderating the talk on that day. Amazing! That's fantastic. I'm so I'm so 
happy that you're getting, you're doing this. Um, do, do you have any other projects that you can talk about that you're letting people know it's coming out or? Um, I can't really give details, but I, I am working on, um, I did sign a contract for a new graphic novel that I'm working on right now. Production has started. I actually just got uh, about five pages of completed inks in my inbox today. Oh, beautiful. Um, so I don't know when that's going to get announced. Um, hopefully it'll be released as a graphic novel, but I think it might be leaning towards um, individual issues. If so, it would be an eight issue series, okay. which would be the longest thing I've ever written. Um, and I might have my first prose novel published at the end of the year, Sweet. Um, which is pretty cool. And uh, that would be um, an adaptation of my graphic novel, Skip to the End. Oh, very cool. Um, and then um, working on a pitch right now and um, virtually yours, the rom-com graphic novel I mentioned, which was only released digitally through Comixology Originals, is going to be getting printed in the fall through Dark Horse. Oh, so that's going to be pretty cool. That's fantastic. Well, that's cool that you get. I mean, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to talk to you about, it, but it's exciting that you doing an adaptation of your own work. That's a really interesting concept. Yeah, I, I love Skip to the End so much, mainly because I'm I'm deeply obsessed with the band nirvana yeah um, which we're aware of this <laughs> yes you are and so i just wanted to keep living in that story to be honest yeah. and and i like the characters enough but the book is noticeably different from the comic it takes a ma massive departure both just the storyline and, and characters involved and the ending um but i'm i'm pretty proud of it and did you, uh yeah. did you read the uh tarantino's adaptation for no i've been meaning to it's on my it, list it's on my pile and yeah i'm just i can't wait to get to it because i just i hear just great stuff about it same, so same. yeah i'm really looking forward to read that i just have so the problem is when you the more you write the more you have like writer friends the more you're reading of their stuff mm -hmm. you know you're, you're you're the more you're alpha reading you know their works <laughs> you don't you don't have time to read the other stuff so because you kind of put a lot of effort into reading other people's stuff that you know you know like okay yeah. well being very active and thoughtful here um that's great so where can people find you jeremy what's the best way that they can keep up with you um twitter and instagram uh both at jeremy holt books um and then my website is uh jeremy holt books.com well, that's you know that all works out pretty well for you that's great <laughs> jeremy thank you so much for coming on it's a long time coming. It was great having you when you came on last year, but it was good to get to sit down and talk with you um, to see the hair without any. <laughs> yeah. um, no, it, I like it, the hair. I like it. Thank you. I know. Well, Thank you. I, I'm envious because I don't have any anymore. So <laughs> I, I, I would, I'm fine. You I'll can take paint your head. I'll take <laughs> hair. I don't care. Just give it to me. Um, no, it's, it's, it's cool. And I'm just really glad that we got this time and, I'm glad you're feeling well and everything is like, Thanks. it sounds like it's going to be a really good year. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's yeah. going to be uh, possibly better than last year, which is exciting. We'll keep our fingers. We'll, we'll hold you to that. So the whole world is waiting on. on I'm waiting it. for made in Korea to be on Netflix or Hulu <laughs> or HBO. Anyone. Hopefully, Fingers crossed. Yeah. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, Hunt Jeremy down wherever you can. It's Hunt worth him. it. And uh, we'll see you next week. See you.